Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. I need a little, I need a little bit of, a little bit of help uh, from you this morning. Uh, just a little participation. Not much. You don't have to get up, stand up, introduce yourself. Tell me, you know, three things cool about you. I just need you to raise your hand, okay? We all come from different places. We all come from, and I don't just mean like geographical locations, although that may be true, but I mean like families. And inside these families, we learn different phrases, and we say different phrases. Phrases that to you and your family make sense. Then you go out into the rest of the world, and you say those phrases, and people look at you like, so you're from there. Okay. Give you a couple of examples. Um, this is your part, your participation part. If you happen to have an itch on your arm, raise your hand if you itch it. Okay. If you happen to have an itch on your arm, there are others of you who you scratch it. How many of you scratch it? Raise your hand if you would like to punch the itch at people in the face when you hear them say, oh, it itches. I feel like I should itch it. Um, here's another one for you. Uh, in the evening time when it's time to eat the last meal of the day, do you eat dinner or do you eat supper? Dinner? Supper. You're from there. <laughs> this one's... This one's kind of funny to me because I'm on the wrong team on this one. It's Sunday, and if there's an event on Friday, do you say that event is happening next Friday, or do you say that event is happening this Friday? This Friday? Next Friday. See, that's funny. And the reason why, I think the logic in it is this. The next Friday I'm going to come up to will be the next Friday. Friday, although my wife insists I'm wrong. Here's another great one. Here's one I just, I love to hear. If somebody shows apathy towards something, they just do not have any concern or care for the situation, we oftentimes have a phrase, and here's the phrase. He could care less. If you are a he could care less person, go ahead and raise your hand. There's also another way to say it, which is accurate, and it is, he couldn't care less. It's just one of those things. Like you heard it. You, now, <laughs> let, me give, let me give you one more. Somebody has a major life change. This is one of my favorites. Major life change. You'll hear people say sometimes, he did a complete 360 degree turn. Well, I suppose that would be good, except now he's facing the same direction he was facing a moment ago going back down that same bad road he just came from, he's still heading that way. I think you mean he's dizzy. I don't think you mean he made a change. He just did a spin and went on down. No, he made a 180-degree turn, suggesting he went the other direction. Now, I'll be honest with you. It took more than half of my adult life to figure out what the phrase to make ends meet meant. 
And I know to some people, it's like, like, how's that hard? In my head, I don't know. I'm thinking meat, like on a plate, you know, from some elusive animal called an inns to make inns meat. I don't have any idea. And then one day I was sitting there and I was like, oh, to make the inns meat. Oh, and I was glad I was by myself when that happened. <laughs> For a multitude of reasons, we have these phrases and these words and, and these things that we say. And we say, we say wrong or we say backwards. Or my dad and I have an ongoing text message conversation to where when somebody uses a broken metaphor on some level, he will text it to me. Phrases like, I got to get all my ducks on the same page. <laughs> and it's like, but people do this all the time. You'll use a phrase, well, I got to get all my ducks on the same page. And it's kind of like, yeah, that doesn't work at all, you know. And so it's fun. I mean, it's just, it's kind of one of those funny things. We have these phrases. Some of those phrases and those words, they don't matter. We can use them and you know what I mean when I say, oh, yeah, he could care less. You're like, oh, I think he means he couldn't care less. It's in a 360-degree turn. Okay, well, I think I know what you mean. But there are other words that because of the nature of how we use them, sometimes they take on several different meanings and even levels of meaning. They're almost multi-dimensional. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. A young man whose life is in absolute disarray. He cannot figure out what to do with himself and every single step that he takes seems to be pathological and downward spiral, and he can't get it together. And then one day he stumbles into a job, and he learns a skill. And all of a sudden, his life just takes off. And all the people around are looking at this guy, and they say, man, it's a good thing he found that job. Why? Because that job saved him. Well, it's true. It's a true statement. The job did save him on some level. He's now a productive member of society. It's like the marriage. Two people, and over time, if you're not careful, you can begin to grow apart. You can begin to get these wedges between you and, and kind of just coexist and coast beside one another until eventually it's almost as if your roads just go separate ways and this couple goes through this and it looks like it's probably going to end. They haven't been able to connect for years. And then some sort of tragedy unfolds in their life. All of a sudden, they meet back together. Where they never had common ground before, now all of a sudden they have the most common ground they've ever had in their entire life. And they are glued to each other. And they begin to rely on one another. And they begin to communicate with one another. And all of a sudden, a marriage that was cold and icy and destined for divorce, all of a sudden, connects and succeeds and continues. And the people on the outside say, you know, it's the weirdest thing. That tragedy saved them. And it's partly true. I mean, it's true. It, the tragedy was the catalyst that sometimes causes us to connect with other people and then to begin to work through stuff. You see the opposite happen, but the catalyst part, the tragedy, sometimes that's what saves us. 
It's like a car accident. Cars collide on a highway. There's no first responders there yet. The people from the lined up traffic hop out and they begin to run towards the collision. And the cars are on fire and people begin to drag people out of these cars and they pull them aside and they're, they're doing their best because there's nobody professional here to handle this. And they get them off to the side before everything's just engulfed in flames. The first responders finally get there and they say, were you guys the ones who pulled them out of the car? Yeah. It's a good thing you were here. It's a good thing you were here. We would not have made it on time. What you did was perfect. You actually saved these people. It's true. Saved those people. Saved their lives. When we think about the word saved, why is it in all of these stories, the word seems to have so much more power? But when we move it into the church, all of a sudden, the word just gets kind of plastic. It, almost like it's supposed to be more, but when we say, oh, did you hear so-and-so got saved? It's like, well, that's good. That's, why is it less dramatic than these previous stories? Why is that? That puzzles me. You got to understand, I grew up in the church. I've heard about people being saved since I was born. Saved, 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 saved. So-and-so is saved. And what happens is we develop this vernacular inside of the church to where we begin to toss out these words like this, and we forget that they actually had meaning somewhere. Saved. And if somebody were here who were outside the church and you say, did you, see, did you hear so-and-so was saved? And then they should ask the question, just to keep us on point, from what? What were they saved from? Well, I'm glad I've never been asked that question. Because if you were to ask me, so I hear people are coming to your church and getting saved. What were they saved from? Well, well, well uh, the, the, the devil? Hell? Well, that's not a very good answer at all. Church words. Saved. We just toss it out there, expect everybody to understand what it means. They were saved. Oh, yeah? From what? And by who? And for what reason? Um, good question. It's a missionary man by the name of Paul. In the New Testament of your Bible, second half, in a book called Acts, right around chapter 16, just a little background. His name is Paul, but it wasn't always Paul. It used to be Saul. And Saul used to work for the Jews. He was a Jew, in fact, a top-notch Jew. And when Jesus kind of showed up, the Jews kind of had a problem with Jesus doing what Jesus was doing. Thus, they killed him. But the church just kept growing. These people that became converts to Jesus began to just grow and make more converts and tell more people about this mysterious man who showed up and he was killed and then came back and people had seen him. And there was something that had gone on seemingly in the underworld behind the veil 
that he had done something on that cross that affected the spiritual realm as well. That had something to do with me, my brokenness, and my sin, your sin. And what he, whatever it was he did on that cross and then went to that tomb and then came out of, like somehow Jesus fixed the relationship between us and God because God was angry, angry, wanted to smash us, but he didn't. And Jesus kind of showed up and does this thing and stands between God and us and he looks at God the Father and he says, now listen, don't be angry at him, don't be angry at him. I covered, I covered their sins. Plus, I've been there, and it's really, really hard. And God's anger relented. Paul was one of those guys, Saul. He was chasing down these Christians who kept telling that message because it kind of contradicted with what the Jews were saying. I mean, not really contradicted, kind of built on what they were saying, but they didn't like it. it was stealing away from what was going on inside the synagogue and the temple and Kind of stealing converts. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we don't cancel church. Do you know why? Because other churches do, you know? There's a little bit of this, oh, we love them. We love the Baptist church. We love all these other wonderful churches. We love them. Absolutely love them. But I always grin a little when they cancel church. I always do. Like, I will trudge through the snow to have church. That's not very nice, Jared. I'm not very nice sometimes. The Jews are kind of hacked a little bit. Just a little hacked. Paul is in that group. Saul, his name is. Then he meets Jesus. Face to face, a vision. He's struck blind and he hears Jesus talk to him. He says, Saul, why do you keep fighting this? Isn't that funny? That, isn't that kind of the same story that most of us have with our encounter with Jesus? When we finally get down to the brass tacks, it's like, why are you fighting this? Why are you fighting this? Why do you keep pushing against it? I don't want to go. Who are you talking to? You know what I mean? Like when you begin to have those thoughts of, I don't want to do this. Who are you talking to? Just talking into the air? You're, something is compelling you to do something, and you're saying no? I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. I don't want to have them over. I don't want to be their friend. Finally, the man known as Saul saved. Comes face to face with Jesus. Becomes a Christian. Becomes a missionary. And then begins to travel all across the world. Telling the story of Jesus Christ and what he had done in his life. The story that we're talking about today is him showing up in a few different areas. And I need to point out some of these things. Because they're important. I would like you to read the chapter when you get a chance. Acts chapter 16. I will sum it up for you. Um, just give you the run through. But I would like you to read it because it's super, super, super valuable. And when we get done, you'll be able to read it and understand it a little bit better. Acts chapter 16. We start off. The Apostle Paul is traveling through this area. The area is this. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra, meaning the Christians, 
at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of this man named Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along, uh, along the journey. So he, I won't go into this, but he circumcised him because he knew that the Jews lived in that area and they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So here's the scene. He shows up in Lystra and Derby. Paul does. Iconium. Somewhere along this trip, he meets a young man. They say he's probably, oh, late high school. Meets this young man named Timothy. And Timothy's character is so solid. Now, here's what else is interesting about Timothy. He comes from a split religious home. His mother is a Jew and a believer. And father is a Greek. And Timothy is a Christian. And it said that everybody spoke well of who Timothy was. And when Paul, the greatest Christian missionary that we have ever known, meets this young man, this young high school age kid, he looks at him and he says, I think he's got a role in all of this. What are we saved from? What are we saved for? Let's start off on a surface level and then we'll dive into it a little deeper. The first thing is this, if you're taking notes at all, if you want to, we are saved from wandering and we are given purpose. You see, here's what is really cool. There is no doubt. Inside of Western Christianity, inside of Western culture, one of the things that preachers, people like me, and I've been guilty of it, that we, we do sometimes in preaching is we make a little, big, a little too much of a big deal of fulfillment, personal fulfillment. Are you fulfilled as a person? You know Jesus wants to fulfill you. I don't know that Jesus is ultimately too concerned with always making sure everything you want you get from your Christmas list, right? I don't know that he's always interested in jumping in and saying, well, are you happy? I want you happy. I mean, are you that way with your kids? I just, just want my kids happy so long as they're happy. And they'll live in the basement for a hundred more years. They'll eat your food and they'll never launch. They'll never, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't. You've got to begin to push them a little bit. That means that there must be something out there for us. Jesus isn't too concerned with whether or not you're ultimately happy and fulfilled, but he is concerned with the fact that you are useful. You are useful. Now listen, there's two ways to look at this. Some people look at it like, oh, the burden. Oh, there's so much to do. Then there's other people who look at it and go, I can't believe he actually has a purpose for me. Like, actually. Like, I've got to be honest with you. Like, I'm not super resourceful. Like, you can put me in a lot of situations, and I will let you down, all right? Like, I, it, it can be really, like, there's certain places you don't want to, you don't want to put my skill set, okay? It's just not things that, not a place for some of this, okay? But I'll tell you what was really cool to me. When I encountered professors at school 
who said, the storytelling thing that you do is really good. I'm like, yeah, we only needed more of those, you know? If we just needed a guy that, hey, you want to tell me a story? I need a story. Tell me a story. Like, huh. But I don't think that's a real, they're like, it is a, it's a real thing. Like, you should do it. Like, yeah, yeah. Where? Where? In the church. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not a preacher. <laughs> they are way nerdy. I'm not interested. You know, I'm kind of a cool guy, I think. And I need to not be that when I grow up, you know? But to find out you're useful, to find out that God has a purpose for you. And I know what we do. We go to that place of, oh, so this is my purpose? This thing I do? This job I do? Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Don't assume you know what it is. Have you asked? Have you asked, what is my purpose? What is the thing you want to accomplish in me? Don't just assume. Begin to ask. Dive into that relationship. You don't know what it is that he has in store for you. The clarity for that only comes through Jesus Christ. That's the only way we get to that. First and foremost, we are saved from wandering and we are given purpose. When we encounter Jesus Christ, I don't care who you are, immediately you are burdened down with purpose. He now has a goal for you and he wants to put you into the game and into, the, into the, uh, the process of figuring all that out. There's a second part of this. If you look at this next, the next part of the passage, starting in verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, uh, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching, came to the border of uh, Messiah. They tried to enter, enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. Have you ever been in that situation to where you had plans? This is what I'm doing. I'm going to do this. These are my plans. I'm going, to, I'm going to quit this. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to take this step. I'm going to enroll in this. I'm going to change jobs. I'm going to begin to um, pull myself back from some of the things that I'm doing. I'm going to make some changes. I'm going to set my feet this direction and start going that way. And have you ever had that moment to where it just doesn't work? It just doesn't work. Like you try to go that way. Like, no, just doors are just slamming, closed in front of you. Here's Paul, one of the greatest Christian missionaries ever. He's got a really sharp mind. He knows exactly what he's supposed to be doing. And he sets out to go preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. I'm going to go here and preach the gospel. And Jesus goes, no. What? No. Okay, I'm going to go here and preach the gospel. No. Okay. What? He's like, take a nap. And Paul goes to sleep, and then somewhere in the night has this vision of a man standing, interesting, in Macedonia, begging Paul, come and help us, come and help us. Paul wakes from the dream, he looks at everybody else on his team, which is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and then Luke, the writer, and he says, we got to go to Macedonia. And they're like, 
well, that's weird. Like, we were going a different, a different direction. Like, no, I, I had a dream last night. There's a guy in Macedonia. He needs us to come there. <sighs> okay. Now, here's what's interesting about Macedonia. Macedonia had not heard the gospel message, and that's an important thing. They did not know about Jesus Christ. It had not made it there yet. That's an important fact. They pack up their stuff and they go. You know the second thing that we're saved from? Boredom. Boredom. Now some of you are like, no, I prefer boredom. Boredom is good. I don't need things changing all the time. I really like things when they're scheduled. Yeah, that's okay. I understand, I understand that. That's a very control freak thing to say. That, that's, that's understandable. I really like schedule, I really like calendar, I really like things to, like my, my, my alarms to go off at the right time and people show up on time. And I, yeah, I understand it, I understand it. Unfortunately, sometimes Jesus has a different plan than you. But there's some of us who we kind of look into this world, and Christianity is known for this. People peek into it, and Christianity looks like a bunch of lists and um, uh, prohibitions. Here's all the things you can't do. Do you want to come to my church? Well, maybe I do. What, what can I do if I, if I go there? Can I keep doing what I'm doing now? Because that's the way church is seen. It's a list of things you can't do. Well, if I show up there, and I don't want to have to hear about all the things I'm, I'm, bad, at, I'm bad at doing. If there are Christians who find their life with Jesus Christ to be boring and drab, let me offer this, just this small piece of advice. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. I'm just not really getting a lot out of it. You're doing it wrong. It is not, it's not work that way. The, part of the problem is this. We approach Christianity with this deal and like, okay, so this is supposed to make things better. Who said so? Is that your own conclusion? Well, I thought this was supposed to make things better. Okay, is that your goal? Did you approach Jesus with a one-sided relationship to say to him, okay, now give me everything I want. Jesus, I'm not happy. Put some happy in here. Because I promise you this, try that in any one of any of your other relationships ever and just see how long they last. Try it at home. How about that? Go home and tell your wife, husbands, you'd, this would be awesome, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Like you go home and you say, all right, listen, this is the way things are going to go from now on. I want to be made happy all the time. That should go well, right? Sure. Sleep on the couch if you want to. <laughs> Wives, try it. Oh, and I know we say that ridiculous thing. Happy wife, happy, li happy life. Happy wife, happy life. No such thing. I mean, the two together, you could have a happy wife, I suppose. But, but that's not real. That's not a real thing. If we approach Jesus with this thing of, okay, now give me what I want, I think maybe we don't understand how this situation worked. You see, here's the situation. You were trapped. You were trapped, 
held down, stuck in a corner, in shackles, unable to get free, and then he showed up and saved you. And I don't know what kind of fairy tales you grew up on, but never once have I seen somebody get rescued out of the top of a castle and then them turn around and look at the man who saved him and say, okay, now give me everything I want. I'll tell you what that scenario looks like. It looks like that man taking that person and throwing them back into the castle and saying, just eat her. I don't care. You can have her. I don't care. If you're not finding the excitement in your relationship with Jesus Christ, might I suggest an option? Stop looking at it as, what in the world can Jesus do for me? And begin to look at it as, what in the world is Jesus wanting from me? What is he wanting from you? You want to find fulfillment there? You have to go that direction. I don't know if you know this or not, but the minute you begin to give and give and show generosity and show love and pour out from your person into the lives of other people, do you know what will happen to you? You'll begin to find fulfillment. But there's no need in pouring anything into something that refuses to pour out. It's already full. If you find yourself discontent, maybe try taking some of what you have and pouring it out. And then go back to Jesus and say, I did the thing you asked me to do. Can I have some more? My guess is you'll find the excitement that you're looking for there. See, we're saved from boredom, and we are handed over into adventure. Our God is adventurous. Our God is very adventurous. So consider this. He did not need to create anything. He was perfect. There's heavenly beings who worship him all the time and sing of him all the time. He is self-sustaining. He does not need anything. He didn't need earth. He didn't need people. He didn't need zebras. Like That's not... He didn't need any of that. It's like, you know what I was thinking about in all my omnipotence? Mosquitoes. It didn't happen. You know what I need? Faulty people. That's what I need. Somebody who will really just throw a wrench in my plans. That would be awesome. No, he didn't need that. But yet, he created the earth. Then he creates us. And you know what he could have done? He could have created it, as some people say, and then retracted and just let it do whatever it's going to do and let it turn into whatever it's going to turn into and not get involved. Yet he did. That's adventurous. Would you, if you were on the outside looking in, want to get involved in what we have going on? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't look at the polarization of the world and everything that you see in politics and war and sin and brokenness and abuse and say to myself, you know what? I created that. I should probably throw it away. I should probably turn around and maybe try again elsewhere because they're messed up. But he didn't. He engaged. Not only engaged, but continued to draw closer and closer and closer. We start off in the temple. He shows up and he's got this, or the tabernacle, he shows up with Moses. Hey, they build the tabernacle and God exists there. And then as they go on, it's the temple and God exists there. And then Jesus shows up in human flesh. That's very, very close. And then after the resurrection, he shows up in spirit form and lives inside of us. That's really close. And then 
for the final act, he goes and creates a place for us and then says, you know what's even better than that? Instead of me coming to your place, how about I create a place for you where I live and then you come where I live and you can be in my world. You want to think God is not adventurous? Shame on you. He is... He has thrown himself into more difficult things than we ever will. We don't love our kids half as much as that. We do nothing for our kids in comparison to that. We are saved from boredom. We are given adventure. Here's the third part. Acts chapter 16. How are we doing? I can't see through your head. How are we doing on time? Good. Acts chapter 16. You look at um, verse 11. From Troas, we put out to the sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day on Neapolis, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district, of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of them listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart and responded, and she responded to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home, and she said, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. You know the next thing we're saved from? We're saved from alienation. We are given fellowship. We are saved from alienation and we are given fellowship. There, the message of Jesus Christ had not hit Macedonia. And he meets a Jewish woman there who is a worshiper of God. And he begins to talk to her about the same God. He begins to talk about Jesus Christ. And she, her heart is open. It says, God opened her heart. She heard the message, and then she immediately, her and her household, are baptized. She runs home, and she's like, you're not going to believe this. I figured out the rest of the story. What's the rest of the story? Okay, so God came, and he did this, and he was with Moses, and then he went through this part, and there was David, and then there was all these things. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we get to this part. This is the next part. It's about Jesus. It makes perfect sense. She tells her family about it, and everybody is baptized. Then she turns and she looks at Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, and she says, if you consider me a believer, if you think that I'm the real deal, that I've given my life over, that I am like you, then come to my house and stay with me while you're here. We are saved from alienation. We are given fellowship. There are several studies on Christianity and the quality of life. And you can go through and you can read these. You begin to look at evangelical Christians and the quality of life, how they report their quality of life. Here's one of the things that I came across. 80% of Christians, 80% of Christians who meet together once a month, meaning in church, in each other's homes, eating dinner, hanging out, going places together, 80%, the people who do that regularly, 80% are happier than the others. More fulfilled. Why is that? Why is that? 
Okay, Jerry, well, yeah, that's, that's kind of a padded stat, really, isn't it? Because I think probably if all of us got together, Christians or non-Christians, and we hung out and we, sp- and we spent time together, I think we would also be happier, too, if we did that kind of thing regularly. You see, this works in the church, but it also works outside the church, Jared. Does it? Just look back on history. Ask yourself. Does it? I can only speak for me. But the relationships that I've had that have been outside the church, the friendships and the people that I ran around with who were not Christians, you know what I found? I found that eventually those friendships begin to turn very, very selfish very, very quick. Very quick. Trust in those friendships was diminished. Both directions. Didn't have the capacity to keep loving some of those people, and nor did they have the capacity to keep loving me. You see, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The chaos that unfolds in some of those other circles, in those other relationships, it seems as if it's always falling further and further into chaos, not into order. Those relationships go and go and go, and those parties get worse and worse and worse, and people begin to dive deeper and deeper and deeper into debauchery. They begin to violate friendships. They begin to violate relationships. This is what happens. But when Christians get together, something different happens. Why is that? Why is that? Jesus says it this way. Where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. You spend time with somebody who is a believer, you know what you have in common? The fact that we're both on the same road trying to figure this thing out. I've got friends who ask me about my marriage. And I know I've shared this with you before. They ask me about my marriage. And they ask me about my marriage as if they don't believe me when I tell them it's going okay. How's your marriage? It's going good. Oh, really? Would your wife say the same thing? Oh, that's a good question. Don't ask her. I'll ask her. I said, is things good? Things are good. Things are good. Things. She said it's good. She said we're good. You know why? Because we don't just care about what's going on in the relationship. I care about their life. I care about their marriage. They care about mine. They care about my quality of life. They care about my relationship with Jesus Christ. They care about my children. They pray for my children. I pray for their children. Do you have that in your life? People who are ultimately concerned with how your marriage is going, they won't even pick a side. Your marriage is more important than either one of you two idiots. We care about that most. Do you have that? Because you need it. We're saved from alienation. This woman here, she finds fellowship with Paul, with Silas, with Timothy, with Luke. If you consider me that, then step into my life and be that to me. That's another thing we're saved from when we use the word saved. We're saved from alienation. As they were among the Macedonians, they came in contact with a little slave girl. She had a spirit of divination, that is fortune-telling. Are you reading this? Of course you are. It's fine, Luke. 
Once when we were going through the place of prayer, when we were, met, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. This is a weird story. Weird. Because you know what's weird about it? Is she's telling the truth. She's telling the truth. She's like a little miniature hype man. You know what I mean? Like here she comes out. Think how awkward that is. Think how messed up that is. She's not just like, oh, this is so-and-so's daughter. This is a little slave girl. She's coming out talking about something that she sees on a spiritual level, some sort of impossible insight on what's going on behind the veil. And she's barking this out loud. These men, servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you how to be saved. Do you remember in the beginning when I said to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ had not yet got to this place? There's only one convert in Macedonia right now. That's Lydia. They've only been there a couple of days, and yet this little girl somehow has insight into who they are and what they're doing. She didn't. She didn't. But the spirit inside of her did. Because the spirit inside of her could see what was going on on the other side of the veil. I know exactly who these guys are. And the spirit would bark and begin to say things like, oh, I know who they are. I know who they are. Servants of the most high God. Telling you how to be saved. Why was it important that Paul got rid of that spirit? It says he was annoyed. That seems kind of superficial, really, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be awesome if somebody annoyed you too much? You just, you know what? In the name of Jesus Casting out that spirit of annoyingness. You are irritated. Start with my kids, maybe. Maybe you'd start with your kids, maybe your family, your in-laws. You know, get them. It's a weird story. What's Paul's problem with this? Here's what I think the problem is. This girl is not free. She's not free. She's not free on any level. Look how dark and twisted that situation is. She's, number one, a slave girl. Number one, she's a little girl. And she's a slave girl. And she's tormented by a dark spirit. And the money that she makes doing this thing, she is exploited by her owners. Something super, super dark. Let me add another one. And now she is adding chaos and confusion to the gospel message. You know what's not helpful in the middle of a sermon? Interruptions. And I'm not being mean. I'm just saying. Like if you just hopped up and you were like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jared. He's going to preach us a message. Okay, thank you. Sit down, please. Don't, don't do that again, you know. And if we start off again, hey, ladies and gentlemen, Jared, I was going to preach us a message. Okay, it's getting weird. Like turn that down. It's getting really weird. I was in a recovery meeting one time, and there's this guy in the front row. And this was a drug and alcohol meeting. 
guy in the front row, super chatty that day, super chatty. I uh, think he may have, been, may have been assisted by something, but chatty, chatty, chatty. And we began to talk. So I'm giving my little spiel on addiction and drugs and triggers and all this, and he hops up and just took off into this deal. It's like, okay, okay, good, good, thanks, 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 thanks a bunch. Two guys in the back, burly dudes, two very burly dudes. Good, good. And I'm, yeah, no, good, 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 good. So continue to give the deal, talking through it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yo, you know, it's just like, it's like Abraham Lincoln. And at one time, Thomas Jefferson. Okay, and he's going bananas right on the front row. And everybody in the place is like, oh, man, this is getting weird. And this guy just keeps going at it. Keeps going. And I said, okay, hey, uh, thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. That's good. Hold off just a minute. I'll finish up my little, it'll only be 10 minutes. Finish up my part. You can, you can, you can talk. Oh, yeah, man, I don't want to even get in the way of that. I ain't even trying to get in the way of what you got going on because what's going on here is important. I mean, this is top notch. I'm like, okay, hey, 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 woo. Dice it down. Like, we're done. We're done. Turn that down. Like, no, 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 it's good. And those guys in the back were like, <laughs> he just kept going, kept going. Finally, yeah, yeah, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. These two guys come down, hey, fella, come on. And I mean, it was a fight all the way out the door. Come on, I mean, kicking, screaming, legs, I mean, just cocking, knocking over chairs, tables, all the way out the door. You hear the doors open, you hear this guy get tossed out, and all of a sudden, these two guys come back in. They just come walking back in. I'm like, wow, wow, couldn't get anything done. Sometimes it happens. On a personal level, think about this. How often do you think we are plagued with a spirit of distraction? Lures us away from the things that are important in our life. Family, time with your spouse, those moments we should be investing in friendships. Instead, we're getting this thumb exercise. Right? How many times does that happen in our own life? Where we're just distracted by all these other things. What are we running from? What are we hiding from? What are we causing chaos in? What message are we sending? Are we diluting the gospel message? Here's what's important. Family's important. Family is important. In fact, I'm going to make a post about it right now. I'm talking about how important it is. It's easy to do. You get super distracted. I think that's one of the things that's going on here. I think Paul looks at this and says, this is, this is too much. It's too distracting. See, we are saved from bondage, and we are handed over and given freedom. We're saved from bondage. Like, it is not at all in God's interest for us to function inside of those kind of chains and those kind of shackles. Not at all. To where we are plagued with something, where we can't get free of something, where this constant depression is always on us, where this constant negativity is always on us. That is not God's desire for you. I'm not saying that we don't have some sort of effort we have to put in. But sometimes I think we have to look at this thing first. 
is this a thing that's being, I'm being plagued with from the outside? Is God, is Satan taking a toll on my home? Is it beginning to just work on my home, causing pain, causing distraction? Maybe there's something else I need to be doing. We are saved from bondage. And we are given freedom. Finding out that these men have taken away their master's ability to make money off this little girl. The owners come in and they grab him and they throw them in jail. You're going to show that Bible verse again, aren't you? Sleep a gun. This guy. When her owners realized that, there were hope of make, that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Now you're going to stop. <laughs> they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Don't show the rest. They're locked in, they're chained to the floor, paying the price for this thing that happened. And it says, finally, at midnight, Paul and Silas begin to sing songs. They sing these songs. Spiritual songs, hymns. They're singing these songs. And an earthquake happens. In fact, if you want to look this up, you can look this up. If you go back and you look at this place in Philippi, the uh, geography there, you begin to look at the land there was a massive earthquake that happened at the same time. We see it in Scripture. But if you go back and you look at the archaeology of it, it's actually recorded there as well. This massive earthquake that happened. It busts all the doors loose. It breaks the chains from the floor. The Roman rule was this. If you're a jailer, a soldier at all, and your job is to watch over prisoners, here's the one thing that you don't let happen ever. Nobody gets loose. If you get escape done, you're done. That's Roman rule. Like, escaped? No. If your prisoners escape, you are finished. And now the whole jail is busted wide open. All the doors are open. All the chains are loose. And everybody is still inside. The jailer is asleep. He wakes up and he comes running in there. And he pulls out his own sword, seeing all that the doors are open, and begins to say, you know what? I would rather do it myself than let Rome do it to me. And begins to kill himself. Takes his sword and he's going to fall on it. And Paul comes from around the corner and he sees and he says, Whoa, 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 my brother, whoa. We're all here. We're all here. Don't harm yourself. The jailer calls for lights. They bring in torches and they light the place up. And Paul is sitting there still holding a church service in the middle of the earthquake in jail. Singing these songs. <laughs> the jailer is like, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Can you show that one? 
on, on, there you go. He then brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you know what this question is not? It is not a theological question about can you get me and my relationship with Jesus on the right track? That's not the question. This doesn't even make any sense to, to, to put it in that, in that term. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Let me tell you what this is. This man has been an employee for the Roman Empire. Rome is scary. Whatever Rome wants, Rome gets. Rome is scary. But you know what's scarier than that? The fact that he just watched the whole situation go down. He watched these two men, Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke seem to be out of the picture. Paul and Silas get beat with rods and never have a glint of fear in their eyes for their own life. They got tossed into jail on some trumped up charges for advocating some sort of law that's unlawful in, you know, Philippi. And they're thrown into jail and then locked in the inner, the inner cells and then the jailer sees an earthquake happen. These people still singing songs. The doors bust open and they don't try to escape. You see, there's something super, super wrong with this picture. And this jailer knows it. If he's a jailer, I know some of you have probably worked as a jailer before. It's probably a pretty positive environment, typically, wouldn't you say? Language is clean. Everybody's motives are pure. Everybody's kind. They say please and thank you all the time. Absolutely, nobody's in there lying. Everybody's sweet, nice. They're not making up excuses to try to get out. Then they don't harm each other. Probably what you experience is them singing, Jesus loves me every evening. Probably not. But this jailer has to look at the situation and say, everything about these guys is off. It's off. The question he says the question he asks when he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved, is this. Look, I know good and well that you're not guilty. And not, even though Rome is on my side, and I've got the power to do whatever I want, I've never seen a situation like this. Look, I brought you in here. I saw that you've been beaten. I chained you to the floor myself. And you kept singing your ridiculous songs. And then an earthquake happens, and somehow all the doors are open, all the chains fall off, and none of you leave. Look, I don't know who you have on your team, and I don't know how mad he is at me, and I don't know what is going to happen next and come raining down on my head for messing with you two. But if there's time, if there's just a moment and I can ask one single question, is your God mad? I mean, is he coming for me? And if so, what must I do to be saved? Because he's obviously far scarier than the Roman Empire. What do I need to do to be saved? Paul's response is simple. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to believe in Jesus Christ.
We are saved from the fear of death. Number one fear in the world, you know. None of us get out of here alive. I don't know if you know this. I used to pray, I hope Jesus comes back before I die. I don't want to die. We don't get out of this thing alive. None of us. And that's paralyzing to some people. But not to these guys. We're saved from the fear of death. We are gifted this thing called life. Handed over to us. Now go and live. And this man looks at Paul and says, how do I live? How do I live? Like I don't even know what is going on here, but how do I go and live? Paul begins to speak to him, and he puts it straight out in front of him. You must believe in Jesus Christ. He takes the guy, the jailer, and the jailer shows up, and he washes their wounds, and then him and his entire household is baptized. And then something else happens. He is filled with joy because he came, he and his household, to believe in God. That's one of the marks of Christianity, somebody who has joy. You want to know what will affect our world? What will affect our world is if in dark circumstances, people look at us and go, why are you okay with what's going on? Why are you okay with it? You've been dealt some real crap cards. Why are you okay with it? I'm okay with it. See, it says that he is baptized. Inside the Christian tradition, inside of Scripture, what we know from the, the early chapters of the book of Acts, somebody says to Peter, what, was, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The last one is this. We are saved from our sins. And we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul does here is that very same thing. He puts it straight out in front of him and says, here's what needs to happen. Like, you have to have Jesus Christ in your life. You have to have Jesus Christ in your life. That's primary. He attaches baptism to it. He attaches repentance to it. This idea that I must change my mind. No, 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 not a 360 degree turn. I must do a 180 degree turn and go the opposite direction in my mind and the way I think. And that is where our life is changed. This is our first, uh, our first uh, sermon on uh, church words, covering the word saved. We're going to have some other, uh, some other words, hopefully not sermons this long, but other words uh, that we will dive into. If you do not know Jesus and you need to have that conversation with somebody, I would love to have that conversation with you. If you are in a place to where you need to discuss any of the stuff that we talked about here today, you can shoot me a message, you can send me a text message, you can send me an email, uh, carrier pigeon, you can do... Um, Whatever, whatever is good for you, um, uh, would love to sit and visit with you about it. Let's pray, and then you can get out and have a wonderful day. Heavenly Father.